turn with me to God's Word. You'll see in your bulletin there on page 5, we're going to look at Psalm 119, but I allowed a typo to get through. We're not going to start in verse 18 and go through 96. We're going to start in verse 81 and go to 96. So the page number, if you're using the Bibles we provide, is the correct one, page 514. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 81. As we remind ourselves each and every week, this is God's inerrant and infallible word. Verses 81 through 96. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me. But I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Let's go now, please, to Acts chapter 27. There the psalmist was reminding us again the assurance of God's word compared to the affliction that he faced. And we'll see some of that this morning in Psalm 27. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 44, the end of the chapter. Again, if you're using the Bibles you provide, pages 936 and 937. We already know that Paul and other prisoners have set out to sea on their way to Rome, and this morning we see that they have hit extreme trouble, beginning in verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cotta, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. 
And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must turn aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that we were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. This is the word of God. Let's pray together, please. God, we thank you for Luke. We thank you for the incredible detail that he gives to us about this harrowing trip. We thank you for Paul, who you placed among all those occupied on the ship and all those who were scared, who gave them hope. We thank you for the words that we can draw from this, your very word, that might indeed give us hope, that we can remember again who you are and who we are before you. And I pray that for the little ones who may be going to children's church as well. Let them see that no matter what the circumstances, you are with them, you are reigning over them, and you are taking them somewhere, and you promise to deliver them as well as us to our final destination. We pray that this would be encouraging to our hearts by your spirit, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How hard is life for you right now? How high is the level of stress that you're experiencing? I wonder for some of you, does Sunday night bring the dread that you know will greet you on Monday morning when you get up to go to work? Maybe for others of you, you think that your marriage has passed that point of no return. You just can't do it anymore. And maybe for others, you've reached the point of hopelessness in your prayers for those who you want to follow Jesus but seem to be moving further and further away from him. Do you feel that the world is against you? For some of you, have you even entertained the thought that not living 
it's better than to go on with another day. If we've learned anything in these last few weeks in Acts, I hope it's been at least this. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't shield us from the challenges and the trials and the suffering and the difficulty that come our way. Being a follower of Jesus sometimes doesn't even shield or protect us from being hopeless. But I think we've also learned that being a Christian enables us to endure those challenges, the trials that he delivers us into, the suffering that we experience, the difficulty that oftentimes is our partner in life. It's because in our best moments, we still believe Jesus is actually taking us somewhere. And in the hardest of times, we believe this is the road that he's chosen to take us there. But we know, even in the midst of it all, that our destination is secure. We don't know what the next step's going to be, what tomorrow is going to bring, but we know because he told us that we're going to arrive. We're going to think about our passage in five parts this morning. Now, don't get nervous. Just because there's five parts doesn't mean it's going to be long. But Luke does something here, and the way that he casts this passage, the way that he arranges it, the way that he decided by the Spirit to write his narrative, he teaches us something here. He teaches us what it takes to be calm in the midst of chaos, what faith looks like in the midst of fear, what it might look like by spirit-born and determined commitment, even when we're in the depths of difficult challenges. He shows us that we can have hope when it appears by all circumstances there's really no reason to have it. This morning's passage underlines these truths. It emphasizes it in the way that Luke has framed these many days of difficulty as they make their way to Rome. Here are our five parts. Now notice the rhythm here. Abandon hope in verses 13 through 20. Acknowledge God in verses 21 through 26. Abandon ship in verses 27 through 31. Acknowledge God. Verses 33 through 37. And then fifth, shipwreck. Okay, so there's the rhythm. That's one of the things that I want to take out of here. Abandon hope, acknowledge God. Abandon ship, acknowledge God. And then maybe a shipwreck. Let's look at it together. As a ship is carrying Paul and the other prisoners, seek to make it to Rome... Luke tells us that they are south of the island of Crete, and they run into the worst of storms. Paul says in verse 14 there, or Luke does, that a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. Now, that word that he uses for tempestuous is the word that we get our word, typhoon. These are actually hurricane-force winds that this ship is now fighting against. This is a storm that packs a destructive force. And because of this, they're being driven further and further out into the Adriatic, or what is now our Mediterranean Sea. And in these extreme conditions, we get the sense that everybody on board the ship is now focused on survival, not necessarily just sailing. Luke describes how they simply succumb to the strong winds in verse 15. He says, there is no control. The storm has caught the ship up. They're helpless, and they're driven along. There's nothing that the experienced sailors or captain can do. The wind and the weather now have taken control of the ship. However, he says, for a brief period, 
they sail by this small island of Cotta. Now, remember last week, when you use the word lee, that means that there's a mass of land that's at least buffeting the winds a little bit. And when they're going by Cotta, they determine that they can take the lifeboat and take it up off the side of the ship and bring it into the ship itself. And during this brief period where the winds aren't as severe, what they do is they try to wrap ropes around the boat, around the hull of the boat, underwater, in order to keep the boat from breaking apart. With no control, they're doing everything they can to survive. Once losing the protection of the small island of Kata, they're given over once again to the winds. They're being driven further and further off path in the Mediterranean Sea. Being blown around by the sea, they feared being thrown against the rocks of even a smaller island, an inhabitable island, uninhabitable, this island of Sirtis. At this point, the sailors and the experienced seamen understand kind of where they are. They recognize the landmass and therefore the dangers they face. So they dropped the anchors. But Luke says that didn't help in verse 17. Another very real danger they're experiencing is being crushed to death because the winds are so vicious and their ship is being tossed to and fro in such a dramatic fashion. They have to begin to throw the things that are being tossed on the ship overboard so that they cannot and will not be crushed by all the cargo. And next came the tackle that must be tossed overboard. Again, all they have in their minds is to survive. They're not thinking about getting to Rome. This verse 19, talking about the tackle, it was probably some of the equipment on the ship that was connected to the ship, like one of the big, uh, big pieces of wood that uh, held the sail that swung back and forth. They began to take these beams off and throw them overboard. All of this was in order to enable them to survive. But Luke says the storm never dissipated. It never cleared up. So relentless was the storm, Luke says, that they all had lost hope of being saved. They all believed that they were in the midst of their watery grave. Luke concluded, verse 20. As I was reading this this week and thinking about our time this morning, I tried to find a point in this first part of the passage that I could relate to, and I wasn't able to. Things in my life have never been so bad or been so bad for so long that I lost hope. Maybe in God's providence, something like that awaits me, but so far, I haven't experienced that. But maybe some of you have. Maybe there has been a season in your life where all hope was lost for you. You had continually been battered by the circumstances that threatened to take you down with them. At first, all you could think about was how were you going to survive that particular season. But just as you took one step to secure a particular part of your life that was being so battered, something else happened in your life, another circumstance, and then another, and then another, and it began to suck the hope right out of you. You had no more strength to turn your attention to the next catastrophe, and you began to lose hope. Maybe that's where you are this morning, hopeless. The violent storms of your life, at least right now for some of you, seem to have gained a victory, all at your expense. We'll look at verses 21 through 26. Hope is lost, acknowledge God. Into this hopelessness, Paul, a common prisoner, remember, not a leader by any stretch on this ship, not a seaman, not a guard, 
Not a centurion, just a prisoner, stands up to speak. Luke tells us that the crew and the prisoners have been without food for many days. And we know because he's told us they are weak and they're scared. What does Paul say? I told you so. In the midst of this violent storm to a bunch of hopeless and hungry and desperate people, Paul stands up to say, if you just would have listened to me, we wouldn't be in this situation. Is that what verse 21 is communicating to us? Are those Paul's words of encouragement to the scared, hungry group of desperate people? I don't think so. I think verse 22 helps us understand Paul a bit better and gives power to his words. He isn't saying, I told you so. He's saying, since I told you, and we looked at it back last week at verse 10, since I told you this was going to happen, since I told you that we ought not leave Crete, because if we do, we could lose cargo and life, since I told you this, and now it's happening, will you believe me now, what I'm about to say? I've been proven right. Will you now hear and believe what I want to tell you now? And he says this, take heart. He says, be courageous. Have courage. In some way, shape, matter, or form, do not be afraid. He says that three times in the short little address. Not one of you will die, he says. We're going to lose the ship, but not one life will be lost. So what Paul does as a missionary and pastor, he speaks to their hearts, right? Don't be afraid. Take courage. Be courageous. Take heart. You're not going to die. And how did Paul know this? God told him that he would get Paul to his destination. But in addition, Paul was told that God granted to him the lives of everyone who's on the ship. Now, we can assume from that that when all of this is breaking loose on the ship in those many days of the storm, Paul had tucked away somewhere in the ship, and he began to pray. And he began to pray for himself and for safe passage and for those who were on the ship with him. And God told him that he answered his prayers and that Paul believed him. You will arrive where you're going, and so will all those who are with you. No one will die. The ship will run aground, but no one will die. So into this hopeless chaos, Paul spoke. But notice what he didn't tell them. He didn't say everything was going to be okay. He didn't tell them that God is going to calm the storm. He said, God will not let you die, but you do have a shipwreck in your future. Now understand, when Paul is speaking to the hearts of these scared, desperate, hungry men, the storm is still raging outside. Things have not gotten better. And Paul says these words to them. Now look at verses 27 through 32 and some of the reaction that he receives. For two weeks now, the storm has not subsided. They've done all that they've had the power to do. They continue to be driven into the open sea. They're very, very far off course now. And yet Paul said they would survive. Now the experienced sailors sense that they're nearing land, verses 27 through 28. They're taking measurements of how close the ground underwater is coming to the ship. With the ship still being dangerously storm-tossed, the danger now, according to those who are experienced, is being thrown into the rocks and breaking apart, he says in verse 29. So what they do in order to survive again is to let down the anchors in desperation and somehow, some way, begin to pray that on this day the clouds would part. They would be able to see where they were and how close they might be to hitting land. Now, the most experienced on the boat figured their only way to survive both the storm and the shipwreck, Paul said, was coming 
was to get themselves off of the ship. These sailors now began to lower the lifeboat. Remember that lifeboat they took off the side of the ship? They're putting now back into the water so that they can get on and get away from the boat that they believe is going to be destroyed. So these sailors want to save their own skin. Maybe they knew the area well enough to know that the ship that they're on would never make it to shore. All they knew was that they had to save their own skin to get off the ship and get onto the lifeboat. And by that means, they would survive. Whatever the case, Paul tells the centurion, Simon, we met him last week, who's guarding him, that if they seek, these sailors seek to abandon ship, he, the centurion, and presumably many others on the ship, will not be saved. They will die. You see, unbeknownst to these experienced sailors, what they saw as a life-saving measure for themselves, at least for them, was actually going to put them and all of the others in harm's way. God made a promise that none of them would die, and yet that promise was not received by these sailors. They had a better way. They were to get themselves out of danger their own way. Here, Paul is relying again on the promise of God. If they all stay in the ship, which will indeed eventually shipwreck, God promises they will not die. However, to ignore this promise, the end of the shipwreck and staying on the ship, ignoring that and setting out on their own, there will be no such guarantee of being able to be saved. Paul does indeed have credibility now. Hearing this, the Roman soldiers go up to where the sailors are lowering the boat and they cut the ropes that were lowering the lifeboat to the water. That lifeboat that they spent so long trying to get into the ship just days earlier. Now they were together on one ship with no means for escape. Promised that their lives will be spared, but a shipwreck was in their future. So what do they do now? Look at verses 33 through 37. Abandon ship? Well, acknowledge God. After this desperate attempt to abandon ship, Paul called them together again, even those who tried to save their own skins by abandoning them and their ship. And this time, Paul encourages them to eat, saying they've had nothing to eat for 14 days, probably for many, many reasons. I'm sure seasickness was horrible at this point. They couldn't have kept anything down. They didn't have time to prepare anything. Paul gives them bread, encouraging them as the panic continued. He implies things may not be getting better in the short term. However, he reminds them again, not even a hair on your head will perish. And here's what had to have sounded absolutely crazy to these 276 desperate, hungry, sick, and scared people. Paul thanked God. He thanked God. And yet, Luke tells us all of them were encouraged, even in the midst of thanking God for the terrible situation that they were in. Perhaps it was because this lowly prisoner gave them God's promise again that they would survive. Maybe it was because now they had some sustenance and they could feel their strength coming back for what lie ahead. Regardless, after experiencing that normal moment, a normal moment they haven't had for two weeks, gathering together, all of them together, and doing something together that they hadn't done, in two weeks, eating, they go back into survival mode. They begin to throw all the rest of the cargo overboard, this time the wheat that they were carrying. And then finally, the shipwreck, verses 39 through 44. Luke gives us much detail on how God's promise of a shipwreck was made real to them. The sun was shining enough, the storm had finally given way, and now those experienced see the land, yet they don't know where they are. All they see is land, but they can't identify what the land is. 
However, those who had experience knew that it may be very difficult to get to that land without causing damage to the ship. So they cut the anchors loose, freeing up the rudders, hoisting the sail, hoping that they can navigate the shallow waters in order to beach the ship. But Luke tells us they didn't make it. The ship ran aground on a reef, and they couldn't get the ship off the reef. And the waves continued to batter the ship in such a way that the front, the stern of the ship, continued to break apart, destroying it bit by bit. At this point, the soldiers think there's no way we're going to be able to get off here and keep our prisoners in our charge. And so they devise a plan to kill the prisoners. And you'll remember why they do this. If there is a Roman guard who's in charge of a prisoner and that prisoner escapes, you know what happens to the Roman guard. They're oftentimes killed. So instead of facing death themselves, they say, now that we have hit this reef, now that we don't know where we are, we're going to kill the prisoners in order to save our own skin. However, Simon, the centurion, steps in again. Simon, who is a gift from God to Paul and to Luke and to Aristarchus, put a stop to that plan. Simon told those who could swim to jump overboard, make their way to land. For those who couldn't swim, to begin to take the broken parts of the ship as it's being battered against this reef and make planks so that they could walk to land and find safety. That's the journey. And then they enter the island of Malta. Now, there's just a few things I want us to tease out of this that I hope will be an encouragement to our faith. Just a couple of things. First, I want us to notice the reality of Paul's faith in Jesus. Now, what I mean by reality is that what God had promised to Paul was more real for Paul than any of the circumstances seemed to Paul. Things were bad. They were very, very bad. As chaotic and panicked as everyone was, doing everything they could think of to help them survive, the storm not relenting, the violent winds continuing, to everyone with eyes in their head, they could tell that this was going to end badly. And they understood that they had no power to make anything better. They were at hopeless submission to the storm. They had no control, absolutely no control over their circumstances. And they knew they weren't going to make it. Everything they saw and heard and felt for two weeks testified to this. Even Luke, Dr. Luke, lost hope. But Paul knew something, knew about something more sure, more real, more certain than the relentless battering they had been taking. He knew God's word and he knew God's promise. He admitted things were bad. He told them things were going to get worse. But he says, you will not be hurt. You will not die God is taking you somewhere. And I have faith in him, he says, and you should too. Don't believe what the circumstances are telling you. Believe what God has said in verse 25. That's the reality of Paul's faith. It is more real than the hurricane-force winds and the certain shipwreck they are now facing. So the reality of Paul's faith. Think, too, about the power of Paul's faith when he speaks about it. These people on the ship, other than Luke and Aristarchus, we have no idea where they were positionally in their relationship with God. We don't know if they trusted Jesus, but they trusted what Paul had said. They cut the lifeboat loose when Paul said to escape would bring loss of life. 
The soldiers gave up their plan to kill Paul and all the prisoners when Simon sought to save him. The point is that the centrality of Paul's faith, even to those who did not share it, impacted everyone on the ship. Paul knew he would arrive in Rome and, he te- and would testify before Caesar, just as Jesus had promised him. No matter how bleak things looked, no matter how long that storm had lasted, no matter whether they would be shipwrecked in Malta, Paul knew he would arrive in Rome. That's the power of Paul's faith. It was more powerful than all of the circumstances and storms he faced. When everything about him testified to the opposite, he believed God would get him to Rome. I think you and I can make the connections with our own hearts this morning. No matter how bad things may get in our lives, no matter how relentless the storms may be, we can confidently and with full assurance know that we're going to arrive to the destination that God has promised to take us. There's no guarantee that we're going to arrive there without being battered and bruised. There's absolutely no guarantee that we're going to arrive there potentially after a shipwreck or two. But we will arrive. And that confidence and faith in God ought to mean something in our world, right? Even in the midst of living among our neighbors and fellow students and workmates, those who don't trust Jesus. There are plenty of things that come our way, generally, that could potentially cause panic. We have a 24-hour news cycle that feeds that panic. If that wasn't enough, we have all of our social media feeds that continue to make these great doomsday predictions, whether it's the coronavirus or the next election or whatever it is. But what would it look like if we recognized all the storms about us? In reality, we saw how bad it might be, that we didn't try to... deny them or downplay them, that we saw them as real, but then we as believers spoke of something that was even more real. What kind of power would we speak with if we spoke informed more by the faith that we have in Jesus and what he said to us than we spoke informed by the circumstances we're in the middle of? It might not make sense to the faithless. They still might try to escape or do away with us. That would make sense to us. But how much more power if we were informed by our faith and speaking about how bad things may be? Maybe make it more personal. Maybe you're in circumstances where you're losing hope, like Luke and the rest of the guys and gals on the ship. You may be in a place where you see no way out. You've tried everything and the storms continue. You can't get that person to change. They continue to be somebody that you can't live with or want to live with. You've tried and faltered and tried and faltered and tried and faltered, and you're in the same place, if not worse than you were two years ago or three years ago. And your faith shrinks, and your hopelessness grows, because you're driven by your circumstances. So you have subtly determined, like the sailors, that it's better for you to abandon that particular ship, whatever that is for you, rather than to trust God throughout what seems to be a desperate and hopeless situation for you. The prescription that Acts 27, 13 through 44 gives us is that we need to be reminded of God's promises precisely when hope is lost, precisely when we are considering abandoning ship. Yes, things could possibly get worse for you before they get better. 
Yes, the circumstances do have the power to rob you of hope. But just as God's word says, when things get so very bad, we have to acknowledge him then and there. That's the rhythm of this passage. This is how the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write it. Things are bad. Things seem to be hopeless. We seem to want to quit. So acknowledge God. We may be tempted to abandon ship. We may be tempted to pull the ripcord, give up, sign those divorce papers, quit that job, not seek to be reconciled to the one who hurt us so bad. We look for any reason to escape because things are so bad. It's then that we acknowledge God. And it's then that we bring him thanks. That's the rhythm of faith. Look at our circumstances and remember that our hope is not in those circumstances. Our faith is more real. Our faith has more power than the worst of circumstances. Let me say it this way because this is how it ought to be said. It's the object of our faith. The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that's more real. He's the one that's more powerful than any and all of our circumstances. He's the one that has led us into those circumstances. He's the one who's present with us in those circumstances. He's the one that's ruling over those circumstances. And he's more powerful than all of them. And he's using those circumstances to prepare us for the final destination that he has promised to take us. To be with him forever and ever. There is nothing or no one more real and nothing or no one more powerful than the Lord Jesus Christ. And the truth that he gives us when we are losing hope, when we're giving up. Hopeless? Acknowledge God. You want to abandon ship? Acknowledge God. You see a shipwreck in your future? Acknowledge God. It's in Jesus that we find the strength and the power and the truth and the reality of who we really are. Let me pray for us. God, we do thank you for this passage. We thank you again for Luke's faithfulness and detail. Oh, I wish we could read Paul's heart in the midst of the chaos of the ship. But you've given us what it is that we need, and those are his words. May they become our words. No matter how hard life gets, we know you're taking us to a place where you're going to wipe away every tear, where there will be no more death. No more sorrow. No more pain. While we're here, we're going to experience that, but you're taking us to a place where we won't. And we set our eyes there, even in the most hopeless and difficult circumstances, we pray by the power and the reality of who Jesus is. In his name we pray. Amen.